Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. How are you doing? My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors. In just a second, we're going to go into a time of teaching. Uh, but I want to mention something that it's kind of very rare for me to mention. As you know, we're not a church that gets involved in a lot of politics and that kind of thing. Uh, this last week, though, there was a, a bill that I became aware of in the California Senate uh, that maybe I started researching the other week, and then I, I heard from Biola later in this week. And uh, man, it's a really serious thing. It's uh, it's, already, it's a bill that's already gone through the Senate. It's going to committee this next week. It's already been approved by the Senate. And it would basically be an attack on Christian colleges. You know, it'd be basically saying if you're a Christian college, you can't require people to be Christians to come to a college. You, if, you're, if you come to a Christian college, you can't require them to go to chapel. If you come to a Christian college, you can't require them to subscribe to a code of moral conduct. You, these things would be discriminatory. Uh, and so these are the kinds of things I've been talking about, right, that, that are coming and... Uh, and so it's a, uh, I just want you to be aware of that. We may be talking about it more. I'm not used to talking about it publicly, frankly, like, like this, because we don't do this a lot. Uh, I think it's like in the 11 years I've been here, maybe the first or second time that I brought up something. Um, but if you're interested, uh, uh, I've been tweeting some about it. So my Twitter account is at Michael Yearly. Uh, the uh, Facebook account's Michael David Yearly. And so um, if you're interested, you're more than welcome to connect there, and I'll be sending out more information. But I know that important vote is coming up this week, June 28th, uh, for one of the uh, committees. And, uh, and, and my, my hunch is this will go. I, I got heard from Biola finally like on Friday, kind of a thing went out from Biola. And uh, my hunch is this will probably go to the Supreme Court if it passes. And then, of course, California is such a bellwether state things that, you know, happen here, influence the nation. So it's a, a major um, attack on religious freedom. And uh, I really see it as a critical turning point in the, the history of our nation. And uh, so anyway, I just want to be aware of it. So you be praying about it, be aware of that. Uh, like I said, if you want to follow, or you just Google it. I'm sure that it will come up. Um, and there's, uh, you know, you can, you can follow along on the different sites and so on, all right? But one of the things I, I just believe with all my heart is that Jesus is King Jesus. He's, he's, Jesus. He's, he's, he's King over all creation. It's not a time for us to worry and fret, and it's a time to go to the walls. Uh, it's a time for us to be praying and to uh, let our voice be heard in positive ways that we, we stand for uh, religious freedom and uh, one of the, the deepest values of our culture that if that falls, it's funny, I've been thinking about this this last week, and I've been reading a lot about World War II, and it so much reminds me of kind of the tactics used in Nazi Germany to step-by-step uh, step ostracize the Jews from society. And it just seems like this is a major step to say, all right, you can be Christians, but you can't talk about it in public forums. You can't have your own colleges that would separate in any way between those, and, and obviously a, a tremendous blow, right, to religious liberty. So uh, something to be praying about, uh, something you'll be aware of, and uh, uh, I, I don't see this at all as a, you know, partisan issue. This is just a, a freedom issue, and, uh, and so we, we want to be praying for that. So let's pray together, and uh, then we're going to jump in. Father, we're just so thankful for this country and for this privilege that we have of living here. God, we pray for our state uh, we pray for the leaders of our state. God, we pray for, um, we pray for rationality. We pray for uh, common sense, clarity of mind. We pray that there would be wisdom given to our legislatures, that they would uh, make laws that uh, honor you and defend uh, freedoms. And so, God, we pray you'd guide us as a church in this. We also just pray today as we come before you as your people to listen to your spirit, to learn, that you would teach us as we launch in and continue this series on this important topic of decision-making in our lives. We pray it in your name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in for quite a while now that's called Scent uh, Going Global. And if you're brand new, this is actually the third like, sub-series of a larger series called Scent that covers uh, that's studying uh, the, the, the rise and the rapid growth of the early movement of Jesus from its, its launch in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Jesus, the next 30 years of the Roman Empire. And so the last few weeks we've been studying as this, uh, this kind of very uh, innovative church in Antioch. You'll see it on your map. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, very innovative, spirit-led church. Uh, the Holy Spirit leads them to send out two of their brightest and best leaders 
uh, out into the Roman Empire uh, to share Jesus, not just with Jews, which is what they've done so far, but really one of the first times in history to be sharing the message of Jesus with Gentiles as well. And so what's happened is they've had great success. Many Jews and Gentiles have come to Jesus in the Roman province of Galatia, southern Turkey today. And, uh, but when the mother church back in Jerusalem hears of all these Gentiles coming in, it raises lots of questions especially with a conservative faction of the early movement of Jesus called Pharisees, that uh, they feel like, well, it's fine if they want to join us in the Messiah's kingdom, but if they want to be part of the Messiah's kingdom, they have to become part of the Messiah's people. They have to convert to Judaism. They need to be circumcised, follow Torah, and so on. So it's going to cause quite a big issue. And so the church at Antioch is going to send Paul and Barnabas uh, up to this conference, one of the major uh, turning points in all of church history to discuss this issue with the leaders, the apostles and elders of the church of Jerusalem. Now, last week we watched this as Paul and Barnabas come. They're welcomed by the leaders. They're loved by the leaders. And yet this faction of Pharisees is really strong. And so we kind of left it there last week. Everyone's greeted. The meeting is now beginning to run. Now, we don't know how long this conference lasted, whether it was an afternoon, a day, three days, a week. Uh, but what Luke is going to do, he's going to give us the 40,000-foot overview of the discussion that takes place in this conference. Obviously, there's not time and enough parchment for him to go blow by blow through everything that happens. But what he's going to do is say, hey, here are the big picture. Here are the issues discussed. Here's the flow of the discussion. Here's some of the key turning points in that discussion. And here's the decision that was reached as they sought the Lord under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section it's called Decision Making 101, the Jerusalem Council. And you'll notice that I've broken the flow of this council into four phases, or four, think of like four movements of a symphony. And, uh, and so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through it, but I think this will help us to follow the flow of the argument and discussion that takes place. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's uh, open up to chapter 15. We'll pick it up at verse 6. So in verse 6, uh, the apostles and elders are going to meet to consider this question of what does it take for Gentiles to be saved. And, uh, and phase one only takes three words for Luke to describe. So the beginning of verse seven, it says, after much what? Okay, can we say that together? After much discussion. I don't want you to miss it. It's easy if you're to read it to read it over and we miss it. But this is really phase one. Phase one is that the apostles, the elders, the delegates, they're going to spend a lot of time discussing this issue. Now, the question is, well, what are they discussing? Well, if you look back at verse uh, 5, this was the position the Pharisees had thrown down. In verse 5, it says, some of the believers, so they're Jesus followers, Jewish Jesus followers, who belong to the party of the Pharisees, we talked about them last week, very conservative group, uh, they stood up and they said, hey, the Gentiles must be circumcised. And they must be required to follow the law of Moses. In other words, if they want to be saved. If you read back earlier, if they want to be saved. And so they're, they're taking a stance. So the question is, okay, so then, so, uh, so Luke says, so then after much discussion. So the question is, what are they discussing? Now, I can't prove this, but I'd be willing to bet that what they're discussing is the word of God. What they're discussing, the whole issue is what role does circumcision and the law play in salvation? And so it only makes sense that they're going to be discussing what the Bible says about this. So they're going to be going back in the Old Testament. If you were here last week, you remember we looked at Genesis 17, famous passage where uh, God says to Abraham, uh, I'm entering a special relationship with you and your descendants. This is the sign. It's the sign of circumcision. So every male has to be circumcised. If they're not circumcised, even if slaves from foreign slaves, if they're not circumcised, they can't be part of this covenant. They can't within it. So I'm sure that they're going back and the different sides are making their arguments. Very likely, they're discussing in the prophets. We're talking about a day when God would come and circumcise the hearts of his people, not just the flesh. Uh, very likely, they're talking about the prophecies in the Old Testament about one day the Gentiles becoming part of the kingdom of God. And so my hunch is they're spending a lot of time discussing these issues. Now, uh, as we move into phase two, phase two is where Peter is going to get up to speak. So Peter is key leader in the movement of Jesus, isn't he? In the early chapters of Acts, Peter was the leader of the church of Jerusalem. He's no longer that leader. 
He has been out doing ministry and expanded areas. He'll eventually in his life end up in Rome. Uh, and so the leader who has emerged as the top leader in Jerusalem now is a man named James. We've seen this from way back in chapter 12. James is the top leader. This is not uh, the apostle James. Remember, Peter, James, and John. It's not that James. That James was beheaded in chapter 12. Okay? So this James is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Okay? So it's one of his brothers. So uh, he became a follower of Jesus after the resurrection. When I say half-brother, I mean same mother, different father. Right? So he also wrote the book of James in the New Testament about the same time. So he is the undisputed leader of the church of Jerusalem. So Peter's not the leader, but Peter, of course, uh, kind of a leading apostle. Um, he's the one God... So he's going to stand up and he's going to speak. And when Peter speaks, it's going to carry a lot of weight. It's going to be kind of a turning point in this discussion. And when Peter speaks, what Peter's going to say, he's actually, if you read between the he's getting frustrated. And he's getting frustrated because he feels like, hey, why are we discussing this? God has made this clear a long time ago. Now, for those of you who have been in this series, you remember back in chapter 10 and 11, and it's hard to put it exactly on a chronological timeline. We know this conference took place in 49 AD. So if Jesus was resurrected in 30 AD, it's been about almost 20 years since the resurrection. Um, we don't know when Cornelius was converted back in chapter 10 and 11. We don't know exactly. We probably guess 10 to 15 years ago. So 10 to 15 years ago, Peter's going to remind him of what happened. So if you were here then, you remember that 10 to 15 years ago, Peter was totally only Jews can be saved. That was his position. Uh, and one day he's on his rooftop, has that vision from God, the sheet coming down from heaven. Arise, Peter, kill and eat, clean and unclean. And he says, no way, I've never done And three times. And then the Holy Spirit tells him, go downstairs. There's three men. Don't hesitate to go with them. He goes with them. They're Gentiles. He doesn't hang with Gentiles. He doesn't eat with Gentiles. But the Holy Spirit's telling him, go with Gentiles. When he gets to the house of Cornelius, who's a Roman military officer, a Gentile, he's had a vision from God, get Peter. And so as Peter is sharing the message of Jesus for the first time with Gentiles, the Holy Spirit falls upon them, just like on the day of Pentecost. They have their own private Pentecost, kind of like speak in tongues a whole bit, which shows, and we talked about this back there, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the ultimate signature or sign that someone has been made part of the kingdom. They've been saved. And so Peter is like, what is wrong with you people? It's like 15 years ago, God showed that he doesn't make a distinction. The, the Spirit was given to Gentiles. They were not circumcised. They'd not followed Torah. And yet the Spirit was given. God has spoken on this issue. And what he's actually going to say is, he says, why are you testing God? Now, this is Old Testament language. When the nation of Israel was in the wilderness rebelling against God and rebelling against Moses, they're often said to be testing God, testing God's patience. And so Peter says, hey, you, you're here, you're acting like you're seeking God's will, but the reality is God has spoken, you're just not listening. Right? And so that's phase two. So Peter, let's see what happens. So in verse uh, seven, after much discussion, that's phase one, now Peter's going to get up and address them. He says, brothers, and I love this in the Greek, it, it actually says, brothers, men. Uh, it's kind of like Romans, countrymen, you know, <laughs> Uh, it's a very official type of kind of Greek legislature type of feel. Um, so after much discussion, Peter gets up. He addresses him, brothers. He says, you know uh, that some time ago, in the Greek it actually says in ages ago. <laughs> like, this is old news. Um, God made a choice. Catch that. This wasn't my idea. God made a choice. We all agreed on it way back then. That the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Talking about Acts 10, 11, Cornelius. He said, God who knows the heart, he showed that he accepted them, that they were saved, in other words, by giving the Holy Spirit to them, the ultimate sign of acceptance, just as he did to us, you know, back in Acts 2. He did not discriminate between us and them, like, well, I'll give you the Holy Spirit because you're Jews and you have circumcision and you have the law, but I won't give it to them because they're not. He said he didn't do that. He said he purified their hearts by faith faith in Christ. 
So why do you try to test God? There's the Old Testament language. Why do you try to test God? He's like, you're acting like Israel in the wilderness. What's wrong with you? By putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke. Uh, the rabbis would often call the law of God a yoke. So when someone converts to Judaism, they take on the yoke of the law. By a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not through circumcision. It's not through the Torah that we are saved just as they are. Now, this is a major turning point because after this, you're going to sense it. Everyone's going to quiet down. Calm is going to remain. I'm thinking this debate before. I think a bunch of Jewish people debating. Like, right? uh, so, uh, so it's going to be loud, right? And so after Peter takes his stance, Luke says things quiet down. And now it opens the door for Paul and Barnabas to speak, phase three. Now, in many senses, Paul and Barnabas were the ones on trial. It was their message on trial. They, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas are the one that returned from this two-year tour where all these Gentiles came to Jesus. They're the ones that are spreading the message. You don't have to be circumcised and follow Torah to be saved. So in a sense, they're the ones on trial. And so up to this point, they've kind of laid back. But now that Peter has opened the door and everyone's in a, a place they can listen, now they're going to get up and speak. And notice Barnabas, is gonna, his name is mentioned first. Barnabas is from Jerusalem. They trust Barnabas. Right? Paul, not so much. So it's like Barnabas is like, hey, let me take this one. Um, so uh, so uh, in verse um, 12, the whole assembly became silent. Notice that, a whole emotional mood change as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling all the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. And so remember, when we study this in chapter 13 and 14, wherever they went, God was doing miracles. Now remember, miracles are not just amazing. They're God's signature on the movement. They're God's signature on the message, his validation. And so as they're saying, hey, this is a message we shared, and here's what God was doing, and here's how people were coming to Christ and miracles and that lame man in Lystra, and they're just telling the story. And so everyone's got to be getting excited about that. And so now James is ready to sum up. We're ready to move into phase four. And phase four is where James, who's the leader of the church now, is going to give his judgment. Think, think of it like a, a judge who's been listening to a court case, um, and he's now ready to summarize it and uh, kind of put his stamp on this as the leader. Uh, but of course, he's speaking for all the apostles and elders because you sense a consensus. You sense the Holy Spirit bringing clarity to this discussion. And so in verse um, 13, it says, when they'd finished, James spoke up and he said, brothers, listen to me. Simon, which is the name for Peter, Jewish name, he's described, catch this, how God first intervened. He's like, he's going back to Peter's argument. He says, hey, Peter's reminded us how God was really clear uh, to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Powerful Old Testament language. Over and over again, Israel was called the people I have chosen for my name. And now he's saying, hey, Peter's reminding us that God has made it very clear. He's choosing a people for his name. But it's not us. It's among the Gentiles. And so and he says, now, I want to go back to the word. Remember, this whole discussion in phase one started with an in-depth discussion of the word. Well, now as he wraps up the discussion, he's about to give his judgment. He wants to go back to the word and say this decision, not to require them to be circumcised and follow Torah and all, this decision, it is in line with the word of God. And he's going to go back and quote a prophecy. My guess is this prophecy had come up in phase one, but he's going to sum it up. And he says, uh, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this decision, as is written, verse uh, 16, after this, God says, I will return and I will rebuild David's fallen tent. There's a nation of Israel and its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. But catch why he's going to restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. And so what, what uh, James is saying, and this is what we've learned throughout this whole series, 
is that the reason God chose Israel was to be a conduit of his grace to the world. So he chose Israel so that through Israel a Messiah could come that one day the whole world would come and create this new people of God, right? So he's going back to this Old Testament teaching and he says um, that this has all been predicted. He says at the end of verse 17, it says, the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. So what he's saying is this coming rapid uh, increase of Gentiles coming in the kingdom, this is not some aberrant uh, kind of fad that's happening. This has been predicted by God in his word. This has been his long-term plan all along. And so he kind of renders that, and he says, so it's my judgment, verse 19. Uh, in the Greek it says, um, so I judge. He's like a judge making a decision. So I judge, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, remember, in the ancient world, most Gentiles, not all, but most Gentiles were idol worshiping. And you're, when you worshiped idols, um, your life revolved around temple. It was where your social contacts were. You'd share meals there. It's where you'd hang out. It's where your business contacts were made. And so um, to come to Jesus, you're going to have to leave a whole lifestyle that's centered around idolatry. Right? But then on top of that, the ancient world was famous for its sexual immorality, much short, believe it or not, much more than our culture today. And so uh, often uh, sexuality was tied into idolatry. Like when we get to Corinth in a few, a couple months, we'll get to the church of Corinth. Uh, when, when Paul goes into Corinth, at one point, atop of Corinth, was, it's called the Acropolis, the hill above there. Lynn and I were just there last fall. The temple to Aphrodite was there that had a thousand religious prostitutes that would go out in the streets at night to serve the goddess by having sex with people as part of their worship environment. So in the ancient world, idolatry, sexuality, and often mixed together, big part of life. And so coming to Jesus and leaving that old, that's a big deal. And so James says, hey, let's not make it any harder than it is. <laughs> they got a lot of changes to go through, which I love that. Uh, I love that whole attitude. And he says, uh, let's not make it more difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, he says, let's give them three basic guidelines. Like, let's make it simple. He says, guideline number one, let's write to them. Let's put it in writing, make it official. Uh, number one, we're going to abstain from food polluted by idols. Okay, so this whole life of idolatry and the feasts at the temples and so on, we're going to stay away from idolatry. Number two, from sexual immorality, really rampant. And so we're going to come to Jesus. That's a basic. And then number three, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. You know, what's that about? Well, uh, he says, you know, as new believers, they, they don't need to follow the kosher laws, but part of the Jewish kosher law was you don't drink blood and you don't eat blood, uh, eat meat that has not been properly drained. Uh, blood was considered sacred, right? So, um, so he says, uh, in these new communities of Jesus, you're going to have all these meals taking place with Jews and Gentiles. It's going to be very offensive to the Jews if you're eating this blood. So just out of deference for them as an act of law, let's, like, let's just do that one. Let's just do that one. And we'll talk more about these next week, by the way. And so they give them these three basic guidelines. Uh, next week, we're going to wrap up this series. So we'll, we'll hit this letter and what happens afterwards. Um, but he says, and he says, verse 21, and he says, because the law of Moses, it's been preached in every city from the uh, earliest times. It's read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Like, if they want to learn more from the Word, there's ample opportunity. Let's just keep this letter simple. Uh, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to be follow all the Torah, all the, the religious laws, and so on. Uh, but let's keep it to the basics, right? Let's, let's uh, leave idolatry behind. Let's leave sexual immorality behind. And let's at least kind of honor our Jewish brothers that have grown up this way so we can have table fellowship, right? So, so we'll come back more of that next week. But so, so, so thus they make one of the important decisions in church history. I can't even begin to tell you if they had got this wrong, the consequences, honestly, we would probably not be here today. The movement of Jesus probably would have stopped because it would have become uh, just a, a kind of either completely broken off, uh, kind of Gentiles away from their Jewish heritage, or uh, could just become a sect within Judaism. And so this is one of the most critical turning points in all of church decision. What does it take to be saved, right? And it, and it really comes down to our salvation as well. But today what I want to focus on is not so much the decision that they discern from the Holy Spirit. 
What I want to talk about is the process they went through to discern the Holy Spirit. Because as followers of Jesus, that we want to make good decisions, don't we? As followers of Jesus, whether it's our marriage, parenting, dating, school, career, uh, lifestyle uh, 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 issues that we have, uh, sexuality, um, uh, finance, we want to make decisions that are honoring God. And so the question is, how do we make good decisions? When we face major decisions in our life, how do we discern what the Holy Spirit is saying? And I love this passage because I think it lays out some very powerful principles about what does it take to discern God's will to make a decision. So today, topic on the table, decision-making 101. So there in your note sheet. Um, and by the way, I can tell it's getting warm in here, isn't it? It's like, it's like I'm, I apologize for that. We'll, we'll probably turn it down some next week. It's uh, always hard to know how to hit it just right in the summer. But I know because I'm really hot, and I'm probably hotter than you, so I don't feel sorry at all for you. But... Um, <laughs> Pretty soon, the shirt's coming off. All right, so uh, <laughs> decision-making 101, three key questions. All right, so you're, you're a follower of Jesus, right? You want to discern his will. You want to make a good decision. You know, do I date this girl? Do I make this purchase? Do I make this career change? Uh, do I take on this ministry? Uh, hey, our marriage is a wreck. How do we fix it? Uh, how do we make good decisions? Number one. The first one may seem basic, but it is the most important of all and the one most often ignored, and it goes like this. First question is, what do you want me to do? The first question, the starting point when making good decisions is to come before God and to say with an honest heart, God, in this decision, what do you want me to do? Now, this may seem obvious, but trust me, it is anything but. And we see a great example in this passage. And this is why Peter, I think, is so upset with these Pharisees. He's like, listen, you know, we've come here to discern God's will on this important issue. And you all are acting as if you really want God's will. He said, but the reality is, God has spoken to this issue a long time ago. And he was really clear. And we've been discussing it for a long time. But the reality is... God has spoken, and you don't want to know his will. You're saying you want his will. We're discussing the Bible and what the Bible says about his will, but the reality is you don't want to know God's will. It's kind of like that Jack Nicholson line, you know, Tom Cruise. You can't handle the truth, right? Like, you're saying you want the truth, but you don't really want the truth because you're so stuck in your spiritual paradigm of what it means to be a Pharisee and the role of the law in your life and circumcision. Man, I saw you do this when Jesus was here. You're doing it again. You're like Israel in the wilderness. You're saying you want God's will, but the reality is you don't. You are just looking in God's word to try to justify your will. Now, here's the thing. I see this happen all the time. (laughs) Those Pharisees. Oh, strap it on, baby. Here we go. Like, I have been a pastor now for over 30 years. I know it's hard. I'm 40 years old. It's hard to believe that, but (laughs) I've been a pastor for over 30 years. And so how many times have I sat down with someone in my office making a big decision? How many times have I sat down with a troubled marriage? How many times have I sat with someone at Starbucks trying to make a career decision? How many times have I, I sat down with someone whose finances are a mess, trying to figure it out, right? And so we're discussing this issue, right? And they're coming in, or we're meeting ostensibly because they want to meet with a pastor to help them figure out God's will. That's like, that's like the stated reason. But the reality is so many times you get into discussion, they don't want God's will. They want their will. And they want to find something in God's word or in my opinion that will justify their will. Now, they may or may not be aware of this. I will help them, but they (laughs) may or may not be aware of it. I was talking with a lady recently, right? We were talking, I said, you know, I'd like you to consider going to counseling. This is particular counsel. I think it might be helpful. And she said, no, I, uh, no, I, I, I don't want to go to that counselor. And I'm like, 
well, why not? And he told me, tell me a reason. I said, okay, well, okay, those are some pretty good reasons. Um, so here's what I'm asking. I'm asking, I'm not asking you to go. I'm asking, would you pray about going? No, I won't pray about going. Because um, I, I know I'll go to this other counselor, but I won't go to that counselor. And I'm like, wait a second. And I said, you're being rebellious right here, you know. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I always listen to you. I, I do it. No, no. I'm at, will you pray about this? I'm not asking you to go. I'm not saying you have to go. I'm just saying, would you ask Jesus if he wants you to go? <laughs> and you see what we do? It's like, so how many times have I been across from a couple in counseling where the husband has an anger issue and he's harsh and he's controlling? And we're going through this deal, and it's so obvious to me that I'm sure there are two sides to this, and I'm sure that, but it is so obvious to me, man, you are out of line. Like I, regard the anger, the control, I mean, it's so out of line. And so, and so we begin to unpack it. Okay, so let's start with basics. Like, husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church, right? Laying down his life. Your needs and interests, more important than my own. I'm here to serve you. I want to help you be everything you can be. And you are, have this major anger issue, harshness issue, critical spirit. Um, and, and so I might, at some point, like, what do you think Jesus would say and he's going to tell me, well, I know I get angry about this, but it's just the way I am. <laughs> and it's like, what does the way you are have to do with anything? <laughs> Isn't this the whole point that we come to Jesus so we can stop being who we are? Like, isn't that the whole point of this thing, right? And so it's like, oh, no, no, no. You know, I talk with a couple. Their lives are in financial mess. They've been here at Rocky Peak for 10 years. How many times have they heard the teaching from this stage? That as followers of Jesus, you cannot serve God in money. Like, you have to decide. Either your stuff belongs to you or your stuff belongs to God. This is a fundamental decision. And the Bible is really clear. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So as followers of Jesus, we bow the knee to him. We say, God, everything I have is belong to you. So from now on, you teach me how to spend it. You teach me how to make it. You teach me how to save it. You teach me how to give it. And as you lead me, I will follow. And now there's someone that's been hearing this for 10 years. They've ignored everything the word of God has said. Their life is in a mess. And they come and say, what do you think God's will is for my life? <laughs> I think God's will is that you listened 10 years ago. <laughs> you, are you with me in this? We do this all the time. And we fool ourselves. We come before our life group. Would you pray for me? We have this decision to make. We come before God, oh God, I need your wisdom on this. And the reality is, we are not willing to listen if he speaks. Can I tell you something? By and large, there are occasional exceptions. By and large, God speaks to one kind of person and one kind of person alone. And that's the person who is ready to listen and follow. Until that point, God's going to stay quiet. Why should he waste his time or put your spiritual life in danger by speaking to you when you're not ready to listen? Because if he speaks and you don't listen, your heart becomes hard and it prevents you from hearing him even better the next time. 
And so, so many times we go before God, like, with, hey, pray with me on this decision. I need to decide to move to North Carolina. You know, I'm sick of California. I'm sick of the crime. I'm sick of the traffic. I'm sick. I can buy a house back there. I can buy 40 houses back there. It's just <laughs> awesome. I have a house for my kids. I got a castle. And so he just asked, okay, so have you thought about churches yet? Well, not really thought about that. We well, might want to think about that, you know? You might want to think about that. And, uh, and, and what do you think God wants you? I just, I think God would be all for this. I think he would just be all for it. Well, have you prayed about it? Well, you know, um, I've asked him, you know, yeah, kind of. I've, I've asked him, yeah, yeah. And so it's like, well, if God were to say no, where you think you would stay here or do you think you would go? Well, uh, I don't think he'll say no. I, I... <laughs> and so then you hear three years later, Hey, we moved to North Carolina, and we've got this huge piece of property, but our, our kids have walked away from the faith. We've been here for three years. We can't find a church, and we, we're just kind of isolated, and our, life, and our marriage is struggling, and it's like, hello? You asked, but you didn't really mean it. How many times in our life do we ask for God's will and direction, and the reality is we will not do it unless it lines up with what we already want to do? And the worst of it is we are playing the hypocrite because we're able to tell ourselves we're being spiritual in the process because we're asking. And we're living in self-deception. Can I tell you something? God loves us. He wants to direct our lives, but he will not speak. As a general rule, I'm going to leave some exception there, but he will not speak if we're not ready to follow. Now, it's interesting when you study the life of Jesus, you find this was the key to his life. We're Jesus followers here, right? Like that's what we are. We're passionate Christ followers. So if you want to follow Jesus, you have to do what Jesus does. Um, and so how did Jesus approach his life? Well, you study the life of Jesus, what becomes very clear, his top passion in life was pleasing his father. This was his criteria. You see it all through, especially the Gospel of John. But just a couple examples. John chapter 5, Jesus has just healed the man. He healed them on the Sabbath. Very controversial, right? The religious leaders are all over him. What are you doing healing on the Sabbath? We saw why last week. We studied the Pharisees, right? So uh, Jesus says, like, what do you think? Like, I just did this on my own? Do you think I just woke up today and decided, hey, I think I'll just tick off the Pharisees? What would make them most irritated? I know, I'll heal somebody today. This would be awesome. <laughs> Gather a crowd right in their face. You know? He's like... No, no. He said, the reason I heal on the Sabbath is because it's what God, it's my Father, is showing me to do. And so he says in this way, in chapter 5, he says, by myself I can do what? Nothing. Nothing. He said, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. It's a driving force of my life. Look at the next one. John 8, 29. He says, the one who sent me, the Father, he's with me. In other words, he's all over my life. He's in me. Through. He's, he's working through me. We're working as a team. He's with me. He said, he has not left me alone. Why? For I always do what pleases him. Like if you want to experience the presence of God in your life, you want God's voice in your life, you want his direction, you want his power, the first question is, are you living to please him? And when you make these decisions in your life, is your first question, God, what are you saying? And do you really mean it? I love the way George Mueller put it, you know, famous 18th century or 1800s guy, this amazing Christian leader, just famous for his walk with God, his prayer life, and so on. But he talks about this decision-making process in his own life, and it goes like this. He says, I seek at the beginning, so when I'm making a decision, he, I seek to get my heart into such a state, catch this, that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. Now catch this, what he does not mean, he does not mean I become a Zen Buddhist. <laughs> he doesn't mean I extinguish all desire. What he's saying is, when I'm making a decision, I try to get my heart in a place where I can come before God and say, God, this is what I want, but what I want more than what I want is I want what you want. Jesus models this perfectly in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's very honest with the Father. I don't want to go to the cross if there's any other way. But he says, but not my will, but yours. So he's saying, my will is, I don't want to do this, but I have a deeper will that I want what you want more than I want what I want. Okay? And so what Mueller is saying is that when you come to a decision, if you want to discern God's direction, the first step is to come to a place where to say, 
you know what? I'm surrendered enough. I can go right or I can go left. I'm not saying I equally want to go right or go left. If I have to go have this tough conversation, I don't want to have that tough conversation. But if that's what you've asked me to do, I will. I don't want to not purchase this thing. But if you don't want me to, I won't. I don't want to break up with this girl, but if that's what you're telling me, I will. You see, it's, it's, it's coming to a place where we're willing to go either way. And can I tell you, until we get to that point, it's very difficult to discern. And so he says, that's his first step. And then he says, nine-tenths of the trouble, think of that, 90%, nine-tenths of the trouble with people generally is just here. In other words, we, we ask God for wisdom, we're not there. I was thinking back in the early, in the early story, I was thinking back to a time in my life when I was kind of growing up and just really begging God for wisdom and deliverance. But the whole time, if I was honest with myself, I knew deep inside that if he answered my prayer, I was going to disobey. Have you been there? It's like, God, God would you come through for me? And I, you know, if you, and but you know that you're not ready to obey yet. So he says, that's 90% of it. And he says, um, then he goes on, he says, uh, nine-tenths, nine 90% of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. And when one is truly in this state, it's usually but a little way to the knowledge of what his will is. I found it's hard to get there. Sometimes there's a struggle, right? It might take you a week or two whatever, to come to a place of whatever you want, God, because we don't start off there. But when we come to that place, we're able to hear. God is able to speak, okay? See, if you ask the wrong questions, you'll get the wrong answer. If you ask, what do I want to do? What do my parents want to do? What do my friends want to do? What feels right to me? Uh, how have I been raised? What's my, those are wrong questions. The right question is, what do you want me to do? Above all those things, what do you want me to do? We start there. Number two. Uh, the second question, and by the way, if you don't get the first one right, skip the rest. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, you want to go to San Diego? You get on the 405 going north, forget it. And like, from that point on, you know, it's like, you're on the wrong road. You're not getting there, you know? It's going to be around the globe time. So, uh, so number two. Let's assume you've done number one. Number two, what does the word say? Now, this is an important one, and we're gonna, it's probably a little bit, this, the way this is going to unpack is probably a little different than some of you experienced church people think. Um, so let me, let me find there, but this is where we start. I think the first thing, it, once we've asked, what do you want me to do? The, the next question is, well, what does the word say about this? Now, the word is not going to speak to every issue, is it? Uh, the word is not going to speak to, hey, I've got two job offers, they're both lucrative offers. They both look good. They're about the same distance away. There's nothing morality involved. They're both good companies. And so which one should I take? The Bible's not going to say, take A. Yeah. Um, and so, but in most decisions in life, the Bible is going to speak in some way to that decision. Maybe not all, but in some way. And so the first step to when we're making a decision, after we've said, what do you want me to do, is does the Bible speak to this? What does the word say? And because the most consistent way God is going to direct our lives is through his word. Most consistent because he's spoken there before. And so you don't have to pray, hey, God, there's this non-believing girl, but she is such a babe. She's just a nugget. Do you think this would be a time to make an exception to your word and, and date her and then marry her because she's so beautiful? Uh, no, we don't have to ask that question. Hey, God, you know... Um, like this, this amazing opportunity to make money, it does involve insider stock trading, but what, you know, I could, I'll tithe, I'll tithe to your kingdom, you know. Um, it's like, God, I know, I know murder is normally wrong, but, you know, I mean, um, so, uh, so we need to ask, like, what does the word say? It's the most consistent way God's going to speak into our life, and this is a huge mistake we make. Often we ask for God to direct us when he's already directed us. And we are ignoring what he said. And then we're just asking, well, is there any other answers? <laughs> you know, like, is there any alternative, like option B? You know? um, and so, for example, in Psalm 119, I love this verse. The psalmist says, your word 
It's a lamp to my feet. It's a light for my path. So he's picturing a dark night. A lot of you know, I'll go out hiking sometimes at night in the middle of, you know, nowhere. And, uh, and so uh, I used to have this really lousy little flashlight. Um, but about six months, a year ago, when I was telling one of these stories about hiking at night, and two of you were gracious enough to give me a good flashlight. So now <laughs> it's really awesome. Um, but when you're out at night and uh, you're hiking somewhere, uh, it's, light is, is such a gift, right? Because the light shows you your path. And that's the analogy. He says, you know, it's like going through life is like a dark night. You're trying to decide the right paths to take the right decision. He says, your word, it's like a lamp. It's like a light. It's like a headlamp. Like Christmas, I got this really cool uh, headlamp that my daughter gave me. And I mean, like my headlamp is from back, you know, when they had candles. Uh, and uh, it's like, you know, burn your hair. No. Uh, but uh, it's, you know, it, it's like it illuminated so little. You could hardly stay in the path, right? But you know, this new one, it's like, well, you know, it's like wherever you go, you just, it's just so much light. And so he says, your word's like that. And so to make good decisions, hey, what do you want me to do, God? First question. And then we turn to the word, and so many times his word just lightens the path. But uh, it doesn't always, right? It doesn't always. And so it's interesting because we don't just need the word to speak. We need the Holy Spirit to speak, don't we? There's a lot of decisions that the word doesn't speak to you direct. We're going to need the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom. What's really interesting to me is in this decision process they make, they start with the word and they end with the word, but in between they consult the Holy Spirit essentially. So if you stop and think, phase one is what does the word say? Remember? Phase four is when James sums it up, says this decision is in line with the word. Goes back to Amos. But in between, they're basically asking, what is the Holy Spirit saying? And it's all experiential. So Peter gets up and he talks about, what is he talking about? The vision he has on the rooftop. He's talking about the Holy Spirit saying, go downstairs and go with these men. He's talking about Cornelius having a vision from God, go get Peter. He's talking about the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles while he's teaching, they're speaking in tongues. And then Peter and uh, Barnabas get up and they talk about the miracles of God that's kind of God's signature on the movement. So if you stop and think about it, it's like their discussion, it starts with the word, ends with the word, but in between it's what is the Holy Spirit saying? What's the Holy Spirit putting his, his, his marks on? And for us as followers of Jesus, it's not the word or the spirit. It's the word and the spirit. We start with the word, we end with the word, but in between, what does the spirit say? Now, sometimes there will be believers that they don't want to hear anything about the Holy Spirit. It's as if the Holy Spirit stopped speaking 2,000 years ago. Kind of spoke to the apostles. He doesn't speak today, right? And so they're going to, hey, what does the word say? But we just hold on to the words. Word, it's just the word. You know, no, 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 we don't have any supernatural stuff going on here. What that does is it lives to a very boring Christian life, like a historical Christian life, you know? It's awesome. God spoke then. What's he showed you? Nothing, right? So it lives to a very boring, plus it doesn't address all the issues that you have to decide. But if you go to this other side, and, you, and there's some Christians that go all the way to, hey, it's the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. And they're always, God told me this, and God told me that, and I had this vision, and I saw this picture, and it's all it is. You'll find that usually those people live crazy lives, usually broken down lives. They don't work. And God's telling them one thing on Tuesday and something else on Friday, and God's still <laughs> making up his mind, and kind of this, you know. And so then everything's messing up, and now they're blaming on God. What we need as believers is we need the Word and the Spirit, and we need to start with the Word, and we end with the Word. So we start with, what does the Word say? And then we say, what do we sense the Holy Spirit saying to us through His Word, through uh, His voice to us, through His peace in our life, through prophetic Word, through um, visions, dream, well, however, He's so creative in the way He speaks. Is God saying anything to me through His Spirit? And then as it looks like, hey, it looks like this is lining up, we go back to phase four and we say, now, would this decision line up with the word? Why? Because we know the Holy Spirit who is guiding us, and Jesus said that he will lead you in all truth, 
the Holy Spirit who is guiding us and lives in us will never violate the word of God that he inspired because God is consistent, right? And so, so we start with the word, we end with the word. What's it saying? What's the Holy Spirit saying in between? And, uh, and when we, as we grow, we get better and better at this. It all fits together. If it doesn't, we need to go back and check our decision because the word of God is like the guardrails of our life we start saying, well, yeah, I know it says that, but over here, I mean, we're probably going to be going off track, right? All right, so number three. The third one is the one that in many ways I'm kind of most excited about today. I, I love the first two, um, but this third one is, uh, is really uh, powerful because it challenges some of our paradigms about how God leads us in our life. I, I think that often in our life that we tend to think if I walk really closely with God, if I'm obedient to his voice, that whenever I come to a major decision, it will get clear pretty quickly and it'll be very clear. And so when we go through times we're really struggling with a decision, where we often then begin to wonder, is something wrong with me? And there's all kinds of people in our life, well, God told me this, God told me that. And you're like, well, what's wrong with me? He's never talking to me. And what I want to suggest is there are times in our life where the Holy Spirit answers us clearly and quickly on issues. I've experienced that many times. But there are often many times in our life when the Holy Spirit doesn't, that he takes us on a journey. It's a journey of exploration. It takes us down the highways. It takes us down back roads. It takes us through research of Scripture. It takes us through long times of prayer. It takes, us through, um, it takes us through research. Um, and one of the key ingredients in that journey is often wise counsel. That he calls us to take the journey with other believers or people in our life that we see as really having great wisdom on this particular issue that we are seeking God about. So wise counsel means wise counsel, right? Like, wise counsel is not the guy at the bar <laughs> saying, let me tell you about women. I've been married five times. I know women. Right? That's not wise counsel. Right? So the question goes like this, what does wise counsel say? And what's so fascinating to me is, is follow the logic of follow me, follow me on this journey. This passage is fascinating to me because this issue of what does it take for Gentiles to be saved, it is a pivotal decision in church history. If they get this wrong, they're going to screw everything up. Everything's at stake. And yet, there is no vision. There is no word from the Lord. There is no Holy Spirit said. There's nothing supernatural obviously going on. But what the Holy Spirit leads is to get his leaders together and to go through a process of discovery. And they're going to discuss and they're going to debate and they're going to disagree and they're going to argue and they're going to discuss scripture and they're going to have testimony and they're going to have Peter share and they're going to have Paul share and Barnabas share. And in the process... They're going to sense the Holy Spirit leading them supernaturally. In fact, look with me at chapter 15 and verse 28. When they, uh, this is in the midst of the letter we'll look at next week. So James is going to write this letter on behalf of the council to the Gentile churches to make it like legal document, you know, that it's, it's certified, it's not word of mouth. And this is how he describes the process they went through in verse 28 is he's describing the Jerusalem council. Catch this language. It seemed good to the whom? Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. So he's going to hit the big three. But catch that language. He says, as we discussed, as we debated, as we prayed, as we argued, as we shared experiences as we came together on this journey, we came to a place of clarity where it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us. It was a process of discovery. 
And often in our life, you're trying to decide what college do I go to? You're trying to decide what career do I take? You're trying to decide, hey, what job should I make a career change? You're making a decision. What's wrong with our marriage? How do we parent our kids? How do we approach our finances? Often we expect. We just go to God, ask him for the answer, and boom, it's going to come the next day. And there are times when that happens. But what I've experienced in my life, I'm sure what you've experienced is yours, is often the Holy Spirit will take us on a journey. And as a result of that journey, we will not only get the right answer, we will get a lot more in the process. We're going to learn tons of stuff in that process. And we're going to grow. And we're going to mature. And God's going to draw us close because he's got our attention. And he's going to open up his word. And we're going to develop new friendships. And we're going to build unity on a leadership team because we're taking this journey together. You see? And so often God leads us. And wise counsel is a huge part of that process. We're not intended always to journey alone. So, for example, in the book of Proverbs, which is big on wise counsel, I love it. It says, the way of a fool seems right to him. In other words, a fool always thinks they're right. They don't think they need any wise counsel because I'm the smartest person in the room. Why would I ask these idiots what I should do? They just slow down the decision. So, the way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man, what? Listens to advice. And you're like, well, if you're so wise, why do you even need advice? Because this is how a wise man gets wise. Proverbs 19, listen to advice and accept instruction. And in the end, you will be wise. How do you get wise? You listen. Right? You take the journey with others. Proverbs 20, make plans by seeking advice. If you wage war, obtain guidance. Right? And so, so if we stand back from this passage, what we learn is that if we want to make good decisions, if we want to discern God's will, what do we do? It starts first with our heart. We have to ask the right question and mean it. God, what do you want me to do? And be ready to listen and follow. Number one, you skip number one, forget everything else. Number two, then we say, what does the word say? And so we go to the word. We consult the Holy Spirit. We bring it together. What is the word saying? And then finally, we take the journey with others that we trust. Because often together, God will guide us in ways that we couldn't be guided by ourselves. And so as we do this, we can make great decisions. And we can discern what's good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Amen? Would you stand with me? Let's pray. And God, we want to come before you now. And while our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, uh, we just want to take some time. And, and I just want to talk with you as my brothers and sisters in Christ, as a church. I want us to do some self-evaluation because it's hard for me to imagine that in a, a, a congregation this size today, that there are not many of us here feeling a little bit called out, hopefully in a in a good way, you know, not a, a way of condemnation or guilt, but just we're just realizing that we really have played this game. We've gone to our life group. We've gone to friends. We said, would you pray for this decision? We've gone to God and asked him for his wisdom, but the reality is we're not really ready to listen and follow. We're, we're ready to listen and follow if he tells us what we want to hear, and we're just realizing how lame that is. We're just realizing we're going to the creator of the universe, asking him for his direction, and then going, yeah, I don't think so. And uh, so I think as we grow as followers of Jesus, we, we grow, we understand his love for us. And usually through hard knocks, we kind of learn that our way is not really so good after all. And over time, we, we, we learn to surrender. We learn to trust him. And so I just want to say while, while we're here together as a family, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, I just want to ask you, you know, is God speaking to your life? Have you been one of those people that you ask God for wisdom and direction? You ask your friends to pray, but reality is you're not really asking the right question and from the very beginning and ready to follow. And if not, is this a day where you need to bow before the Lord and apologize for that and just ask him to forgive you 
and to surrender at a new life. And so, Lord, I want you to have it all. I want to give you it all. I want to stop living my life. I, I want to stop being one foot in, one foot out. I want to stop walking down the middle of the road, which always gets me run over from both sides. I, I want to be, I really want to be submitted to you. I, I want to experience your power. I want to know that you're always with me, like with your son, because I, I live to please you. And what a beautiful thing that would be if today you would trust Jesus in that way and you'd surrender to his call in your life. And, and I know that the difference would be incredibly profound. That it would mark, this day would mark the rest of your life. You would look back and say, it started that day. Maybe you're here while our heads are bowed or eyes are closed, that you're not yet a follower of Jesus. This is all new to you, but you sense God's here. You sense him calling. He's calling you to give, to surrender your life and to ask Jesus into your life and to forgive you and not based on your performance, but on the grace of our Lord Jesus, as we read today. It's not about your works. It's not about your circumcision or Torah or any other works. It's not about your performance. It's about what Jesus did for you. And you want to enter that new relationship. You want to surrender to him. What a beautiful thing in this final song, if you would just ask him into your life. And so, Lord, we come, and we come with you as your people. God, my prayer for this church, my prayer is you would never let us go. I pray, God, that you would not allow us to be lukewarm. I pray you would not allow us to be half-hearted. I pray you would not allow us to live in self-delusion that we're submitted and we're following you when we're not. I pray you would keep the pressure on. I pray you would discipline us as a father who disciplines his children out of love. I pray you'll ruin our lives and ruin our plans until you get our attention, until we learn there is no life outside of you. God, I pray that you would raise up a mighty army of warriors here at Rocky Peak that live for your glory, that are passionate about you. We love you. We want to please you more than anything else in our life. To know you, to please you is our top priority. God, and I pray for grace because I know surrender is not an easy thing. It is a scary thing. It scares us to death. That loss of self-control, that fear of what will happen, it's just a scary thing. And so we need your grace. We can't do it. God, we, we ask, we give you permission. Maybe we can't do it on our own, but we give you permission to change our hearts. We invite you in this place and we just say, Jesus, we want to be submitted. And if we're not, we want to give you permission to change our hearts from the inside out. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so we give you this time of worship. We pray you meet us now. We say, here's our heart. We ask you to change it. And we pray as we bring you our offerings and our tithes, we pray that you would use them to build a place that's just irrepressibly passionate about you, that has your name and your fame as the desire of our hearts and that we are living in power, and we're living in freedom, and we're living in joy, and we are truly a light on the hill because we are full of the presence of God in this place. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give it up for him. And God, that is our prayer, that you would take this heart, and we just acknowledge, God, we can't change our own heart. Your word prophesied through Ezekiel that there would come a day when you would take out our heart of flesh of stone and give us a heart of flesh, that you would put your spirit in us and move us to do your will. And God, we cannot change our heart. We worship other things. We have other idols. We run after other gods. We are weak in our faith. And God, if we're going to change, it's going to take your work in our life. But God, here today, we say, have at it. We say today, here is our heart. God, do surgery, perform surgery. Change it from the inside out. Create a passion for you that exceeds all other passions so that it would just be the natural cry of our heart when we're making decisions. God, what do you want me to do? And we truly mean it. And because of that, You'd speak and you would guide and you would lead us, whether it's quickly or through a process, and that we would follow. And we would live lives well lived, right decisions, full of grace, full of truth, full of beauty, full of strength, full of your spirit, full of love and joy, full of peace and power, because you have it all. 
And so we pray that today, that you would meet us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Hey, a couple things as we wrap up. First of all, if you need prayer about anything, over here to the right, our prayer team would love to pray. The opening will be with us next week as we wrap up this series. What happens is this decision to open the kingdom to the gospels and get really clear on that is going to pave the way for the message of Jesus to pierce the darkness of the Roman Empire. And we're going to watch in this next series, I've called it Piercing the Darkness. And how appropriate for a culture like ours today that we would be that people that are full up, fully surrendered, filled with His Spirit, clarity, grace, love, power, truth, that we would be piercing the darkness in this time of our culture. Amen? And so may God meet us in that series. So next week we'll ramp it up. The following week, baptism, kick off the new series, and then we'll be off and running. And so I hope you can be with us the next two weeks. Uh, and until then, uh, may the Lord bless you. May he fill you with his grace. May you know the love of Jesus for you in profound ways. And may it release a new level of trust in your life that will allow you to both connect and surrender and therefore experience the power and the presence of God entering into your life in new and profound ways, just like with Jesus. He never leaves me, for I always please him. May this be a week where your yes grows bigger and comes faster. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. See you then.